0: Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift you've given us in your Son. We thank you, Lord, also for the gift of humor and, and our ability to, to see uh, our flaws throughout it. We ask you, Lord, to be with us during this time of discussion, that we would be open in our, uh, our opinions, but kind in our remarks. Christ, Christ's name we pray. Amen. Anyway, so just to address your question specifically, Julie, at the first century, we really had almost no oversight from everywhere. But you did have the establishment of bishops in each of these churches, or the, the senior elder. And as time grew on, goes on, we see these bishops suddenly becoming somewhat the bishop over several churches. And they become what they're calling sees, or as the uh, patriarch is what the Eastern uh, churches would call it, the Holy See. But uh, the West, they eventually, the Roman. Church began calling them popes, which is, I believe, Latin for papa. But uh, in any event, we have a lot of discourse, and specifically, that's somewhat what we're going to go today. There's, you have to have a card, and I did print one out. But the place where we have uh, Augustine and Pelagius putting forth opinions begins just a whirlwind of, uh, of basically turmoil throughout that entire region. So were
1: they exchanging letters as they, as they kind of worked this out? Or were they visiting each other?
0: Well, it would be like you'd have a sermon, so to speak, and then that would be recorded and it would be shared, and you would have uh, bishops in a, a church have a question about something, and they would write to another bishop that they felt was either more knowledgeable or authoritative in that regard. And that's one of the things that's remarkable about Augustine is that he basically became kind of uh, our side's expert. And lots of different places would write to him and he wrote prolifically. He has over a hundred if you take them in leaflet form. Well over a hundred, but of all his books, and one of them is 22 volumes long, The City of God, it's just very large and uh, broad. Uh, I saw a a collection of the works of Augustine's in printed form that was I mean it was at least this wide it was just remarkable. But uh, specifically, that's kind of where we'll start now. Is the recap of of him? We remember a lot from last week that he was born in kind of northern Algeria, the gast or Thagasti, if, if you like that last portion of the E, which is probably correct, in about 354. He was had a, a father that was a heathen and a mother who was godly. And so he grew up in a mixed household of belief. It led to him, who had a very sharp wit, uh, really challenging and, and, and not buying into lots of things, whether it was manichaeism or uh, his mother's uh, teaching. He would later become a rhetoric professor in Milan. And as we discussed, rhetoric was that ability to argue a, a position, and he could do it from both sides remarkably well. He was taught by Ambrose, who was the Bishop of Milan. He really kind of started off admiring Ambrose's ability to speak. And so he would go listen to him just because he thought he was In his work, words in English, the perfection of pulpit eloquence. And so, but through that, we have the word convicting him. And uh, I guess you'd call it lore, says that as he was walking through uh, a garden, he felt like he heard a a voice of a child telling him to pick up a book and read it. And upon reading a manuscript of Romans, uh, he was convicted. And later was not only uh, baptized and became a bishop, he eventually became one of the senior bishops of the the region. And so one of the interesting things at the end of his life was he was killed in a siege of his city by the vandals. And I have always heard, those vandals? And really that was a, a Germanic tribe that was causing a ruckus. And if you kind of think about, in my mind, I don't think of a tribe from Germany having the ability to get forth a lot of ships and go across an ocean, but that's how coordinated and effective it was. And if you look at the end of the Western Roman Empire, they were responsible largely for the end of it by placing a puppet emperor on that side. So the uh, Germanic tribes were really very... Influential in the movement of the seat of power from Rome to Constantinople. And so that's a, a little bit of a sidebar, I guess, on that. So whenever we look at what writings of Augustine that we're very probably familiar with, we've all heard his, the, the writings that we call the Confessions. And uh, he was very prolific again in a more... Uh, not purely theological work, The City of God, which is almost philosophical, and I guess it is philosophical in its approach to to the writing. And so the the one other thing I was really impressed with on the fellow is he did something that I wish more writers would do. And at the end of his life, in his 70s, he wrote retractions. So I think that's remarkable, to have such a prolific amount of writing, but also the mental, I guess, thoughtfulness, to say my position I have published here, I now think needs further clarification. And in some cases, it was explanation because that some of the way he was being quoted was actually being misinterpreted. And so his last work was called Retractions. So we're most familiar with him because of his doctrines of grace. And most of us can very easily say, oh yeah, I'm an Augustinian. But that uh, difference didn't exist specifically like this at his time. It was, it was known because it's biblical, but it wasn't articulated quite as clearly as he did. And one of the things that I appreciated about him as well was that he always quoted and used scripture to support his positions. So rather than spe- specifically saying one thing, he would also quote where in Scripture that was at. So, we know him as having taught that grace came to us through God who sent it to us. And of his writings, I think we're most familiar with them because of the fact that they were writing against Pelagius. And who was Pelagius? Oh, this one's a gimme. He was. He was a British monk. And what's interesting to me, again, is that this Roman Empire stretches all the way from Turkey through North Africa up into Britain, and that there are churches throughout it. When you think about the fact that we didn't even have a legal status until shortly, you know, until last week, the 300s, the church was was mightily... Pushed all throughout this, and so I think that was 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 wonderful uh, in the way that God used the empire and its roads to distribute our our beliefs. This is this what we're talking about right now is like 350, and he ends his life in the 400s, like 420, 428, I believe, and so we have a lot of a lot of discussions, but Pelagius he came out with a position that if I ought to be able to do something I can do something. And so by God's telling you you need to be perfect, as I am perfect, he considered that to be the case. Well we must be able to do this because he said we should do it. And I think that's a very uh, humanistic and reasonable position if you don't know the rest of the story. And so one of the things today is I said in my little outline that the short answer is Augustine wins, but really that's kind of a challenge, did he? We, we seem to just continue to struggle with this over and over. So there was also work on the sacraments, the actual what occurs in them that we'll see throughout the Reformation, where the sacraments were described as signs of spiritual realities rather than the realities themselves by Augustine. And we'll see that again, as I mentioned, from the Catholic Church's position, moving into the Reformer's position shortly. So if we were, if you were to try and describe Pelagius, it would be easiest to say he was somewhat of a legalist or a moralist. It, he thought pretty much that the ability that was being described by Augustine was a cheapening <coughs> of grace, and that... It allowed men to live as they please without necessarily uh, a restriction. And I think that's something we hear today as well. People will try to say that to consider the, the doctrines of grace as a cheapening. But again, I, I always challenge people. I was once that way. I thought that until I actually started reading them. And and then I couldn't stop being amazed at how frequently it's mentioned. So, So we short answer is that he rejected the biblical doctrine of original sin the two were basically setting the grounds for what would be a large battle and I I hesitate to go into a great deal of information about the two positions because I think we all know it very well but simply put uh, Pelagius was arguing that Adam was not uh, affected by the the children of Adam were not affected by the fall, that Adam his own sin was paid for himself but everyone thereafter started off in a neutral state and that the influences of their parents or the environment that they were in was what led them to sin and so whenever we look at the conclusion um, basically this discussion's And we had this whole Arian conflict going on as well, led them to say, we need another council. And so we start to get discussions of, let's get everyone together. And so the two councils we'll be focusing on mainly today are the, the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon. And I was particularly surprised upon reflection, what was very popular in Ephesus around Paul's time? What was the city of Ephesus known for? It was the home of the Temple of Artemis. And so keep that in the back of your mind as we discuss some of the other things because as we look at one of the controversies that was being discussed there, we're going to see that tendency towards uh, lady goddess worship promote itself in another way. And so... Along the same time, we have other people around the horn of the Mediterranean, having and putting forth ideas, and in response to that Arian v- view, Apollinaris of Laodicea said, "You know what? I'm going to put a nail in this, and we're going to just, we're going to get this pushed down. We're going to have this word uh, word flesh concept will be out there, and we won't have any more of this this Arian concept out there." And so, he came out and his position and released what was considered this new idea that there was both the Logos or the spiritual side and the flesh side and so he came out with this one one nature, the Logos inside of a body and he was, Laodicea is over here, but he was heavily influenced by his friends down in Alexandria and so if you happen to you have your map, you'll remember that on the bottom side of the Mediterranean is North Africa. And kind of on the right side, we'll have this fan of, of rivers. It's the Nile. The leftmost edge of, those, of that delta is Alexandria. And up about 300 kilometers from Jerusalem, not quite to Turkey, is Antioch in Syria. And so the two headquarters for the people doing battle are going to be Antioch and Alexandria. Yeah. And so, in this case, Apollinaris was talking from an Alexandrian view, and would later get support from the Bishop of Antioch. And he came out with that one one body with a divine spirit inside it. Well, that was uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia said. There's just no way that can be can be the right way, and so he came out with the position that, no, there were truly two natures. We had both a divine nature and a human nature, and it was really important to have both. And so we have this, uh, these two smaller churches who wrote the original letters, and then they were essentially supported by larger bishops. So uh, Cyril from Alexandria comes in and says no we're definitely going to go with this this one this word flesh idea and we have uh, the fellow from Nestorius who was from Antioch come out and he actually became the Bishop of Constantinople as well on the other side so do you guys ever
1: Yes. I'm just
0: curious everybody, what do you mean by nature? Ah, So the, the fact that he was both uh, what he was inclined and what he was capable of doing and that's the crux of what the the final position that we, we have solved here today was what our formula that came out of Chalcedon resolved but if he was okay, just Jesus, I'm
1: sorry. Yes, I'm sorry, yeah. Jesus Christ yeah. How are they yeah. No, my bad <laughs>
0: thank you for the, for the questions for that so they were arguing over the nature of Christ and one side was again saying that he had a fully divine nature and a human body and so they were putting forth this idea that uh, he did not have a human nature so he could not sin he could not actually have all the temptations that we would have Whereas the other side basically was saying, no, he had a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. So he was able to both, uh, what's the right word? Yeah, there's a. If you were to describe it, Wayne, what would you try to say there? Basically, the, the fact that if you don't have one, you lose the ability to have the other.
1: Well, you know, the idea of nature or being is a metaphysical concept, which kind of went away after the Enlightenment. Don't think along these lines as to what's the difference between being or nature and person? What makes you you versus your being? For instance, like we're all human beings we all say have the same being, but we have different person. And we're speaking metaphysically in regards to, uh, to these two concepts. And this is what they're arguing, arguing about is how could one person because it, it because that was one of the big arguments is are we talking person or are we talking nature? Because that's why they would say basically some form of adoptionism where, you know, basically it's a human and he was God and the Holy Spirit went him. Well, we have that too. So that makes us sort of give me God. But the, the idea of one person and two natures was key because you still had just this idea of person, but these two natures, and of course, uh, because he came through extraordinary generations, that human nature was sinless.
0: And they hadn't gotten to that stage yet. Yeah, At this point... Like- at this point, there's one side saying that he is fully, fully God in his spirit and his nature, and the other side saying that he's both fully God and fully man. And by having that separation, the other side was very upset that that implied that there was some ability for that nature to be changed or to be diminished. I said- Pretty much everything but Hebrews okay. by the 200s okay, so was widely right now, accepted. Like yeah, and so by this time, even Hebrews old. is pretty much widely accepted. Okay, and so, so,
1: that's, so they have scripture to mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the New Testament. We
0: yes, and it was important that at this time we still also had some apocryphal works floating about, right. but for the most part, uh, those are re- resolved again soon in the uh, coming years. <laughs>
1: Yeah, one thing to remember though is only about 5% of the population was literate. So okay. We really had to rely on the bishops and the pastors who could actually read this, uh, these, these scriptures and really rely <clears> on the <throat> sermons because they couldn't read. And these are the people, though, the ones that are literate. These are the ones arguing this out. Yes. They're they're the well as well as scholars. So right. And they have scripture They have
0: the letters. Yes. They, in fact, refer to them not in the same way that we do with. With chapter and verse yet, right. but they refer to them as portions of this is the epistle to so and so from this author, and so. So at this council, though, we
1: land on full God, right?
0: Not yet. <laughs> yeah. So in fact, that was the other challenge. But was we had such a fierce rivalry between Antioch and Alexandria that when they called this to settle this, they could not even actually meet in the same area. They figured that we'll go ahead and have have our guys in this area of the city, and you have mm-hmm. your guys in that area of the city. And this, this council started uh, in. Let's see. No, that's later. The, I mean, that's a, that's what we get out of the, this is a, is the the wording. The uh, basically the future pope in Rome writes a letter. He, they call him the Great Leo. The Tome. And in that tome, he comes out with a hypostatic union. He's the one that kind of came up with a wording that stitches these two sides together. And so fortunately, there was a resolution. But at this first steps of Ephesus, it's so disjointed that again, one side uh, basically excommunicates the other, and it comes down to a, a battle of of wills, which is not necessarily where we want to be. And so I was going to kind of point out from earlier that we have this city that they're sitting within that has had this long history of of a female goddess worship. So what the problem was is whenever we have them saying that there's only one nature, is they were saying that Mary was not the bearer of God, Theotokos. She was The bearer of Christ, Christotokos, which to them was a diminishment of her position, and the other side was saying, "Oh no, she's the bearer fully of God." And in fact, that's what we arrive at eventually. Whenever you have the hypostatic union, is that she was the bearer of God, but she was also the bearer of man.
1: But if it's just his body is just human,
0: and it's later. Uh, imbued with the spirit, that was a diminishment of her and the Ephesians were having none of it. Yeah, and so I just thought that was very different to me that this one place that they're having this argument it's happened to have been, yeah. It's because they don't want Mary's honor
1: What they point to for that for scripture is the announcement from the archangel that they will call him the son of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. of the Virgin Mary, and was uh, seen by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, from the very conception, he was not only human, but he was God.
0: Mm -hmm. And 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 that's, I think, the, the fact Leo came to that point of being able to say, here in Scripture, we know that he was fully God. And he was deft in his ability to take the positions and literally stitch them together into something that we still use today as the re- explanation. One, you know, we have, and I, I always have to actually turn to my notes to make sure I'm reading it correctly, but the, the, we have the, the Trinity that has one God with three natures, but we have the hypostatic union that's one person with two natures. And so it's uh, it's very different than that. So Nestorius becomes infamous later in life because people come out with a two different sides of Christ that there were two natures and they won't give that fact up. And later Nestorius recants his position before he passes and says I, I, I'm completely on board with what they came up with. And But it's not for another hundred years that his followers finally uh, are anathematized at another council in the future. So they were called diophysites, and then you had monophysites, which there's some very fun words that uh, explain all these things, but it comes down to the natures. Fully God, or fully God and fully man, and how those two interact, and whether one displaces the other. That was another important factor, was, does ever there exist a time in which one of the two natures was preeminent over the other? And if it is, we have a problem. And so that's again why we we have this lovely uh, hypostatic union that says no, they're always fully God and fully man. So, so we uh, so the bishop of Alexandria was named Cyril. He's the one that put that forward. And if we if we were to look forward again into a little bit of the The maneuverings that occur all this time you have all these emperors that are in movement, right? Well sadly, we kind of have a similar position going on with our bishops. Both Alexandria and Antioch vie for authority over each other and you have Constantinople sitting in the middle with the emperor there now saying, well we're going to side with this one or we're going to side with that one and what happens whenever they lose their uh, argument in <coughs> Ephesus is that we have another fellow, uh, Eutychus, rise to the prominence, and he essentially starts to appeal to Rome and to Constantinople. So he's appealing to everyone. But, um, and so I guess just to put a pin in Ephesus... It was from November to July for the official meetings, of which there were seven sessions, but then it was from July to October before they finally pronounced the conclusion, and in that conclusion they actually had eight canons, one of which officially condemned Pelagianism, and the other seven had a variety of Nestorian and other challenges. But so we, we see that, uh, that one come to a conclusion. So Eutyches comes out with an, a position that is very extreme in the fact that he he was the one that put forward that there was only one nature after the Union. And so it was that displacement issue. And in response, Flavian came back and said he was committing heresy. Heresy. Uh, Oh, it's okay. Eutyches was the one that said the first that the that the uh, the nature displaced the humanity, and Flavian came back and said, "No, you're 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 speaking heresy."
1: Actually, it's that the humanity was absorbed by the was uh, absorbed by the divinity.
0: All right, that's in either in either d- dimension. If one went away, we know that's a problem. And so, again, this is before our, our tome from Leo that has the nice resolution. This is back in, uh, like, 450, 450, 449. And so, essentially, Flavian, being the uh, bishop of Constantinople, banishes Eutyches. And so, Eutyches runs off and, and, and asks for help. We have another fellow, Diorskis who was eventually uh, a a successor to Cyril, mainly because he was Cyril's nephew, ride the other position. And uh, again, the the scorecard is very, very challenging, but there was a lot of people turning to different sides looking for preeminence. And so if you can imagine the turmoil all of this is now being joined with the the empire. So before they didn't argue quite as much because they were underground now they're above ground and they're looking for this support from the state and they did receive that. So finally Flavian appeals to Rome and that's where we get the tome from Leo and it causes a fluff and they actually have to have yet another ecumenical council. And we have our fourth council in 451 of Chalcedon. And so this one's not in a city that's got some baggage and we uh, have an interesting thing. If you look, the, the emperor just uh, not even a year before was Theodius II, he falls off a horse and dies. Marcion is selected by the Empress and he becomes Emperor and is then the one that calls this council. And so this was one of the largest uh, councils that was ever attended. There were over 520 bishops. So again, in my mind, that's just remarkable that you have from (laughs) all over creation, it seems, bishops coming to to this enclave. Yeah. Well, I guess that's why things took, you know, a year. Yeah. Is you sent out that first letter, and it was from the emperor, so it would have traveled fairly quickly uh, throughout the empire. Yeah. So these letters they're sending out to all these... Churches. Churches, like the one that
1: you mentioned, Eudiches. Eudiches. These are bishops.
0: Yes, yeah, so again, effectively a bishop is just another word for presbyter, or that's senior... Uh, leader of the, of the church. Yeah. And so Marcion, as the emperor, called for this and as the emperor, he was able to get the word out to everyone and everyone literally came. And because
1: all the common people probably didn't they're everyone was responsible for getting this information to
0: them. Well, the Romans, again, it was, they were remarkable in the fact that as emperor, he would say take this throughout the empire. And copies would literally go out across Roman roads to every city. And so in every city that there was a church, it was de- it was delivered. And so, and it was it was fairly elaborate in the fact that it would be distributed to one, made copies, and then be distributed further. So it wasn't like the same one went to every single place.
1: So did a lot of things change because of that? How different people interpreted those letters? No,
0: they were remarkably, uh, capable of, of not one jot or dot being asked. Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, I know we look at like the monastery system kind of with the skeptical eye today, that they were really responsible, you know, in those early days that they were the ones who
0: you look at the uh, quantities of manuscripts that as you say were produced for a large part it was the, the monastery system that said we'll make uh, copies that are verified and so they they produced quite a few and the, the more wealthy individuals would support a place that would then create them a family copy and so so one of the other political maneuverings was that Theodias was a supporter of Alexandria. When Marcion comes on the the scene, he's more neutral. And his his wife actually favors Antioch. And so we have some of a, again, almost political maneuverings when in in the course of events, her influence might have helped a little bit in saying, well, we need to we need to go ahead and, and try and really look at this open-mindedly, or it might have tipped the balance towards the Antichian view. So, whenever we look at the, uh, we look at this, Marcion was also the first emperor to, re- to read the results of the council. So, we have, um, a fellow that was very aware of the how things looked, so he had himself made up some very nice-looking robes, even though he wasn't a bishop, and had himself, uh, you know, he he sat in the back, so to speak, on his chair, and had all these maneuverings going in front of him, and in the end, he concludes by reading the uh, the results, which remarkably are where we ended up with the approval of the. Final uh, Creed of Nicaea, because the original one was, was authored, and then they had some revisions at Constantinople in 381. Well, they come up with the last version here at uh, Chalcedon, and they form this uh, balanced orthodoxy that Jesus is, in fact, just one person, hypostasis, having two natures, the hypostatic union that Mary was the God-bearer, she is the mother of one who is always fully God and fully man, and that that was uh, largely due to the writings of Pope Leo of Rome, and this is one of the areas that finally elevates Rome as a more preeminent uh, place. And so the other thing that helped Leo out was that the Germans were knocking at the door, and so the empire was beginning to have issues on the western side, and he became the champion of of the area, so to speak. Because by this time, Christianity and the empire are really being muddied. We have, uh, in fact, I almost look at it today and wonder. You know, it's obviously what the Lord wanted. It's what happened. But we still today struggle with this idea that the church and the state are joined. In America, it's like no the separation of church and state. But other than us. That was not the case. If you go to the Netherlands, they had a state religion. If you go to Denmark or to uh, the northern uh, European countries, they have a state religion, and so uh, it's been it's been somewhat joined at the hip since this time.
1: Well, I do think it's interesting. Like we're watching, and they they almost crave some kind of oversight. I mean, you can see it forming. They kind of feel the need for oversight.
0: Yeah. And that's uh, an interesting comment. If you look at it, at this time the church worship was very uh common. It didn't have music yet. It was very much just a singing of hymns. Uh and it was ring the bell. <laughs> and was uh, Just the reading of the word, because again, there were no Bibles, but people came and were read to from the letters. And so, the aftermath of this is a further schism. The church in Alexandria, which is what we now know as the Northern Egypt, has today still about 10% of its populace is Christian. We know them as Coptic Christians. But they never really let go of some of the uh, separation about that union, that, that single nature. And so they did not fall into the Roman Empire. Whenever the Muslims came through, they were almost relieved. They were like, we can be what we want to be now. And, and to a large part, they, they did. Next week, we'll talk about the great schism, the splitting of the church. And it was uh, again these 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 discussions that came down to a theological point, but they just could not get on the same page and everyone not be stepping in each other's way. And so, what we have today in our 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 country is lots of little churches that have slightly different views, and that's not much different than what they had then. Was they had churches that still had slightly different views. And so we'll see that the Lord has shepherded them through this, and he'll shepherd us through it as well. So um, we'll pick up next week, as I said, probably from here to the Great Schism, which was the splitting of the Greek Orthodox religion and the Roman Catholic position. So shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your word and the knowledge we have of your desires for us through it. We ask you, Lord, to prepare our minds to worship you rightly and through your spirit to do so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.